You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe. Life Audio. Hello, and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, I was recently perusing the headlines, as I often do, and I came across this delightful little article in The Sentinel, which is a conservative publication. And the headline was this. Over half of Southern Baptist universities have diversity, equity, and inclusion infrastructures. And to be clear, this reporter was not trying to say that this is a good thing. Uh, To many Southern Baptists, DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, that is synonymous with, you know, radical leftism. And so pointing out that over half of SBC universities and seminaries have DEI programs or infrastructures or use some of that language – It was kind of like seen as proof positive of liberal drift in the denomination. And I'll read you a little bit from that article. At one point it says, At least 27 of the 52 colleges associated with the Southern Baptist Convention or one of its state conventions has some form of official diversity, equity, and inclusion infrastructure. 20 of the colleges have a chief diversity officer, vice president for diversity, or some other form of diversity director, liaison, or coordinator. 19 of the institutions have a DEI office, department, center, committee, or council. Many of the colleges with DEI infrastructures have official statements on diversity or entire web pages devoted to diversity on their websites. And the article, it goes on to list specific schools that have entire web pages on their websites uh, devoted to something as pernicious as diversity, including the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the denomination's flagship school. And it says this of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary has a web page devoted to its position on diversity, though it is uncertain whether there are any policies or personnel dedicated to executing this position, end quote. And of course, all of this is kind of part of a larger movement among a lot of right-wingers to kind of scaremonger people for clicks uh, by suggesting that the SBC um, has gone liberal and it should go back to its roots when it comes to its stance on race, which if you didn't know, was originally that slaveholders could be pastors and missionaries. And actually, if you go to the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, all of the buildings, the major buildings, are named after the founders of the school, who uh, owned slaves. And as late as 2020, they decided that they didn't want to change that, but they put a hidden little plaque saying, these are the great men that um, founded this school, and yes, they own slaves, and we want to honor the contribution that those enslaved people made to this great institution. So there's all that going on. However, there is this very real conversation to be had about DEI, not as a concept, because I feel like most of us can get on board with the concepts. And if you can't get on board with the concept, then, you know, we got bigger problems. Uh, but as a set of policies or as a philosophical framework for how to achieve uh, a just society, how to achieve a just organization. And so... Um, that's what I want to look at today. Do the policies enacted by DEI programs truly help the best and brightest people to get advancement regardless of their race or gender? And the same question actually goes for affirmative action. That's been in the headlines as well uh, in recent days uh, because it was recently struck down by the Supreme Court. So that's what I kind of want to explore today from a Christian perspective. As Christians, what are we to do with things like DEI? Affirmative action. Are these things from the devil? Are these things that are we should be advocating for because diversity, equity, inclusion are good things that Christians should be advocating for? Or is it more complicated than that? So that's what I want to talk about today. But we'll dive into that in just a 
moment. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. So DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, uh, much like CRT and intersectionality, it has kind of become something of a boogeyman for right-wing culture warriors. And it's actually um, featured heavily. I think in a lot of ways, kind of the right-wing political sphere has moved on a little bit from CRT and DEI has become a new talking point as kind of like the the boogeyman that we can attack and talk about how it's destroying our society. But I thought that we would take a look and see like what actually is DEI, um, what's going on with affirmative action. Are these things that are congruent with a Christian perspective or are they not? Or is it a mixture of both? And if it's a mixture of both, what is in and what is out and how do we navigate all of that. So what is DEI? So DEI is an organizational framework that seeks to increase diversity, obviously. Uh, it seeks to treat individuals fairly and justly to decrease discrimination uh, and to increase inclusion and really to create systems and policies to that end. So on the face of it, that sounds like a good thing. We can agree on that. Yes, Tamara, you agree that that's a good thing? Yes. Okay, cool. But the thing about it is like how do you go about implementing that? And the the methods vary widely. They vary in what is implemented, they vary in the philosophy behind it, they vary in effectiveness, and it can be any kind of number of things depending on how robust a organization's a DEI program is. It can include things like special advancement programs for people from historically marginalized groups. Uh, most DEI programs involve a company having you know, a statement or particular messaging around articulating inclusive values. DEI can also involve diversity training, much like harassment training. It's you know bundled into whatever that HR package that you have to you know sit down and go through once a year. Uh, it can also mean uh, hiring quotas. So some of the criticisms of you know some of those policies are that you know diversity training is often ineffective at cultivating harmony across groups and it can actually reinforce stereotypes that um, will increase animosity across different groups that might not have actually been there before, except for you exacerbated it by this whole HR machine that is like putting people to watch these really canned often silly videos, uh, and it's not actually effective, in many ways it can be counterproductive. And beyond that, more often than not, diversity training and you know DEI vision casting in an organization, it can more kind of serve as a shield to any potential litigation that the firm may face, rather than actually fostering unity. And so it's more of a virtue signal than anything else is that critique. Uh, but also it's been argued that, you know, Hiring quotas, I mean, and that's a real bone of contention, they can be discriminatory, whether it's towards qualified white candidates or other candidates of color, uh, if they're not the color the company is looking for. And it can kind of pit groups against groups, and it can kind of create a sense of animosity um, in the name of inclusion. And so there's been you know suggestions that there's, there's actually – uh, race-neutral ways that you can achieve diversity and equity um, without, you know, something as drastic as like a quota that that may end up in some kind of unfair hiring practice. So, Tamara, what are your thoughts on all of this just off the bat? What has been your experience with DEI policies? And from a Christian perspective, what's good about them? What are the flaws? You just asked me a lot of questions um, that are not easy answers. 
Well, um, that's what I do. That's why I started a podcast is I just wanted to sit here and ask you unanswerable ask questions. You. Yeah, I don't Thank know what happened. Ask you. Let me ask you a question. Thank you. Yeah, this this topic is interesting in the fact that it's in theory, we should all agree on it, right? Like we should all agree on its importance um, to create um, diversity within the spaces we operate in and to do that in a way that is charitable, that is honorable to people of um, both genders as well as um, different racial and cultural backgrounds. Like we should want that in the spaces we live in. Right. Yes. Uh, the difficult part is how do you carry that out in a way that is um, fair to everyone, that is unbiased, that is creating equal opportunity for people of different backgrounds. Uh, I think oftentimes we see the policies around these things um, are not serving the the growth and uh, the benefits that we hope they serve. And meaning um, when it comes to hiring, for example, where you have quotas, right? Where like you have to hire X amount of women this, you know, over the span of a couple of years, or you have to hire X amount of um, people that are from a minority group within your area. Uh, those, um, policies often make it look like we're not actually giving everybody an equal opportunity at this role. The way that you're going to get this role is you're going to get it through being a female or you're going to get it through being, uh, somebody who's part of a minority group. And I've actually seen that play out in the workplace, uh, not in a Christian workplace, but I had seen it play out in somewhere that I was working where diversity was becoming like really big um, in leadership. And uh, I was in the room when they were weighing out two candidates for a job opportunity. And um, there, it was really hard to decipher like who had uh, the better qualifications in terms of experience and skills and education. Um, but in the end, the decision that moved that person forward was the fact that uh, one was a male and one was a female and they were trying to hire more females in the workplace. Yeah. So it's kind of like in baseball when there's a really close play at first base, they always say tie goes to the runner. And so in this case, Ty goes to the person from the historically marginalized group. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just, I remember being uncomfortable sitting in the room thinking like, I also don't want it to be that just because he's a male, he he gets it. Uh, but I also don't want it to be just because she's a female, um, she gets it. In, in the same way, when we talk about like ethnic groups or uh, racial diversity, you don't want it to be like just because you're white, you're going to get it or just because you're part of a minority group, you're going to get it. That doesn't actually like I think that's doing the reverse of what we want it to do insofar as it's not actually about um, the skill sets, the experience um, or your capability of doing something. In the end, we're still reducing it down to something that you are unable to change. Right. Which is why we created these policies in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're back at the same starting place. Um, when we boil it down to the reason you're going to get this is because of, uh, your gender or because of your ethnic background. And I've also personally seen that, um, Within scholarships for colleges, uh, I did receive a scholarship that um, if I would have checked the box that I was white, I wouldn't have been eligible for that scholarship. But because I checked the box that I am um, Hispanic, I was able to be eligible for that scholarship. Mm -hmm. So uh, and I am both of those things. Right. right. <laughs> like Me too. You can't tell. If you look at me in my face, <laughs> but I I make the exact same amount of Latino as Tamra. Right. I yeah. just came out on the other side of the coin flip in terms of like how my 
skin and eyes looked. Exactly. Yeah. And so it it's just I've seen the faults in those things. And I am someone who wants to see like um, equity and diversity and inclusion, and all those things within education, within workplaces, within churches. Like I want to see that all. But I've seen the the weaknesses in the way that this is actually carried out. Um yeah, like in the fact that there was probably somebody else who was in just as much need of that scholarship that I received that's white who was not eligible for that scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and the need would have been there like they could have looked exactly like me on paper other than the fact that um, and even the reality, too, is I could have put checked white on the box. Right. And I would, it like, wouldn't have benefited you, but you it could wouldn't have, have benefited me. Um but the same exact person, me, like could have been ineligible versus eligible. So those are just the, the ways that I've seen the policies that are trying to execute DI fall short of what they're trying to do. And because something like this can't be deduced down to policies, I understand that we want to see change. So we feel like we have to start somewhere. Um, but I just think that sometimes the policies do the exact opposite of what we're hoping they're going to do. Yeah. What about this idea? And you're kind of dancing around it a little bit. uh, The criticism of equity as an idea. So diversity and inclusion. Yes, those are uncontroversial as concepts, you know, apart from any kind of policy that we want to attach to it. But equity is actually a word and a concept that is controversial in itself. And it's been criticized because the goal is to create uh, a greater equality of outcomes as opposed to a quote unquote uh, equality of opportunity. So, in other words, the criticism is that in order to get things back to where the statistics are showing that there is equality, equity is is kind of giving more opportunities to certain groups that have historically been disenfranchised or uh, marginalized to kind of manufacture the equality uh, through equity. And so, like, what is your your response to that kind of criticism? I mean, I think there's some truth to it. I think we find ourselves manufacturing it so that we can give people who didn't like, I had once seen it as this analogy of um, a person who is um, given all the opportunities possible, specifically within America, right? Like we're the land of opportunity. Uh, Someone who was giving it had like starting point A. Um, but then you uh, start to deal with somebody who is born in poverty, who has a different um, racial background, particularly uh, somebody of color. Their starting point is no longer A. It's backed up by like 20 feet. Right. Right. So if you have this race and you're saying the end goal is, you know, um, 100 feet up ahead you have people that don't even have the same starting point. Uh, so the opportunity to achieve the goal is not the same for everybody. Uh, and so I think sometimes with these policies, we're just trying to get people to the same starting line. Um, but it's just really difficult to practically put that into place without making it feel like as you're trying to bring somebody else up to the same starting line, you're actually pushing other people back in the process. Or you're not allowing them that same opportunity to move forward. Um, and then we start to, yeah, just manufacture this, um, these numbers and meet quotas when you're not really changing uh, the mindset of that community they're operating within. Yeah, I just finished this book called The Color of Law, and we'll link to it in the show notes. It was written by Richard Rothstein. It's not written from a Christian perspective, but it's written from a legal historical perspective and kind of looking at segregation in America and just the way that the wealth gap between white folks and black folks to this day endures because – it was like systemic to every level, whether you look at the fact that uh, black veterans couldn't get VA loans, black folks couldn't get FHA loans and, and build the wealth of the boom of the, the post-World War II uh, economy, uh, whether it was HOAs, which many of them were 
uh, created with the express purpose of keeping black people out of white neighborhoods. When you look at the zoning laws, how if there was a black neighborhood, they would zone it as industrial to depreciate the values of those homes while keeping the residential white area uh, appreciating in value because they're going to build factories, they're going to build, uh, you know, indu- put landfills, all kinds of things in the industrial zoned uh, property. And then also it has uh, health effects for the children going up there because they only put the black schools in those same industrial uh, areas that there's like a higher rate of respiratory issues and asthma because they're dealing with more pollution. Then the kids don't do as well in school and then they get out of school and then there's all these uh, disproportionate disadvantages right. to them that right. create this generational system to where now uh, because of at every level from the federal government all the way down to HOAs mm-hmm. was working in the same direction against black folks in America uh, that a gener- you know a couple generations down the way, um, we have a real mess. Right. And so at the end of the book, he kind of uh, suggests uh, different uh, ways to look at, uh, he calls it um, remedial justice or reparative justice. Uh, he kind of shies away from the term reparations because that kind of, it, it kind of denotes some kind of one-time payment or stimulus check as opposed to a changing of the structures in, in, in a remedy to what has been socially engineered uh, really for hundreds of years, but even post-Civil War for, you know, the last 150 years or whatever. Um, and uh, he, he just kind of like looks at that. And to your point, he says, um, if we're actually going to do this, one, we have to educate people on how segregation actually happened and endured and the economic and social implications that have been long lasting because of that. And two, we're also going to need to, if we're going to fix this and, you know, reverse all the social engineering that happened during that time, we're going to need to count the cost and we're going to need to all get on the same page that yes, there was a wrong that was perpetrated And just like we accept the blessings of liberty that we did not earn from generations previous, we accept the responsibilities of the injustices that we did not ourselves perpetuate. And to create a more perfect union, a more just society, there needs to be some type of remedial justice on a grand scale, uh, reparative justice, to put things back the way they ought to have been in the first place. And that might include uh, disadvantaging the people who have been so disproportionately advantaged basically since the beginning of the country. Yeah, and I think that's the difficult part. It's a tough sell. That's, that's if you hard... are a white person, that's a tough sell. Yes. Because when you've been sitting in the, the place of privilege and authority, um, right. trying to even out the scales, it, it, to you it oftentimes feels like persecution or something like that. Yes. Well, and to you, the idea of here... Uh, we've seen the the gap that has continued to grow over, you know, year after year after year for a very long time where that hasn't been the case for the majority group, right? They've continued to have um, just opportunity after opportunity where you have the, the, the minority group has always been behind five, 10 steps, not out of their own choices or their own doing, but just because of the system has been so difficult to operate within that it is intentionally a system created to hold them back. And so now fast forward to this point of seeing the extensive damage that has happened that has been allowed to happen um, within so many structures. So now we're trying to change the structures and it seems like then we're swinging to the other side where now we want all more opportunity for the minority groups and we're going to offer less opportunities to the majority group to try and balance out those scales. And that's where it's hard to look people in the eyes and say, the reason you didn't get this now here in, in 2023 is because we're trying to balance the scales. And so you didn't get it because you're white and this person got it because they're Hispanic. Um, That is just really hard to sit in. And I'm I'm not quite sure where I land on that yet. Um, As I think about it person to person. On a large scale, I totally understand it. Like we need to fix what has been wrong for far too long. 
But how do we go about fixing that without it seeming like we're swinging to the other side? Well, I mean, yeah, it may seem like we're swinging to the other side, but still we're not because the wealth gap and the social standing gap between, you know, white folks and everybody else, even with the most aggressive yeah. um, reparative justice schemes, uh, is is pretty large. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, and I understand that. I just, uh, it's hard to find solutions within a world of um, people that um, continue to just oftentimes create things that will allow themselves to have the best opportunities and not systems that allow other people to have the best opportunities. Yeah, I get that. At the same time, we also um, want to speak against a narrative of white people are the most oppressed people in 2023. It's like, we're still doing pretty well, you know? No, because the opportunity has shifted. But that's that's a false narrative because the opportunity that has always been, that has always existed and will continue to exist, has not stopped. Right. All that's currently happening is we're trying to say, how do we move an entire group of people that's been marginalized for hundreds of years? How do we give them a step forward, like massively, so it's not going to take them another hundred years to finally be at the same starting point? If ever. Yeah. So we have to move forward substantially, aggressively in a lot of areas to at least get them to the same starting point. Um, because they have been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back like for far too long to where it's not just like they're like one step down the ladder, right? It's like right. 50 to 100 steps down. So how do we make up all of that ground quickly without it seeming um, unfair? Right. And I think even too, just looking at it from an economic perspective, a lot of times you think like, hey, these folks over here are starting to get a bigger piece of pie. That means that my piece of pie is going to get smaller. But when the economy is productive, it doesn't actually work that way. The pie just gets bigger. And right. so that's another element too, yeah. where we think that uh, we have the scarcity mindset that if mm-hmm. somebody else is beginning to prosper greater than they used to, mm-hmm. then that means that I must be getting less than I should. Mm-hmm. Um, when that's not the case, we can all prosper. And that's how economics work, uh, particularly for the people who you know may have that kind of criticism are such you know staunch supporters of capitalism. Like that's kind of how capitalism works for right. all of the evils and horrible, awful things that we can say about it. Um, that that's why it's, you know, it's the worst system except for all the others in, yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And yes, it should be regulated. That's a whole different conversation. We can talk about mm-hmm. capitalism and the Christian faith in another episode of this podcast. Um, I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about, um, affirmative action. Cause that kind of folds in into a very similar, uh, conversation here. And then also to kind of turn directly to the church and how we see some of this play itself out in the church. So I want to dive into that, but we'll do that in just a moment. Has fear stolen your peace? I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, helping you fight your fears and grow your faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com. So when it comes to affirmative action, it's recently been in the headlines as well because the Supreme Court made a big splash with this ruling that colleges and universities can no longer consider race when deciding who to admit. And so when you read the news about this, conservatives, they hailed it as a win uh, while liberals condemned it as really an existential threat to racial justice. But, of course, again, it's not that simple. On the one hand, affirmative action, it has guaranteed for you know schools that have used it that the student body will be racially diverse, uh, pretty much down to the percentile. Uh, on the other hand, uh, over the years, it has actually worked to pit different ethnic minority groups against one another, namely Asian Americans against pretty much every other people of color. Also, affirmative action, it has been banned in places like California and Texas. I'm not sure if it anywhere else has been banned before the Supreme Court ruling, but certainly in Texas and in California since 1996. 
And when you look at the schools in Texas and in California, uh, in both those states, they are just as racially diverse as the states that have been using affirmative action up until now. And they've achieved that through various uh, race-neutral policies that have ended up netting uh, greater racial diversity, whether they're looking at you know economic factors, whether they're looking at the personal essay that's submitted. I think in Texas, it's like a top 6% rule. It's like if you are in the top 6% of your graduating class at your high school, it's like an automatic yes into a state school. And that's a race-neutral policy, but it has netted greater racial diversity. The caveat with that, both in Texas and California, is that for about 20 years, they were ironing all of those policies out, all of those race-neutral policies that actually ended up in greater diversity. So while we look at them now and their diversity is the same as it is in schools that were using affirmative action to say you need you know this number percentage of of black folks you need this number's percentage of asian american folks that even though that it looks you know similar in diversity now there was like two decades where it was pretty bad while they were working all of that out so given all those complexities uh how do we as christians you think uh you know either conservative or liberal however you stand on these issues um, how do you think we need to maybe like change our tone a little bit or general demeanor when it comes to things like DEI and affirmative action and what we really think the solution is to all of this? Are you asking me to share the entire solution of DEI and affirmative action? I'm saying like, do, like do, <laughs> given the, given that the fact that like yeah. we don't actually know what works, uh, yes. so we should maybe be a little less dogmatic. Right. So in real in regards to affirmative action um, for like higher education and admitting processes, I think um, that's not where the root issue is. It's not necessarily um, colleges like turning away certain groups and accepting other groups. I think what happens is um, you have the entire education system that needs work. Particularly because, like, for for example, I grew up in a poorer area, right? And we've talked about this before, um, where the area was populated by majority uh, was Hispanics. Um, and I don't know what the exact breakdown of, like, um, minority groups and um, white people and then black people. But majority of the area I lived up lived in was Hispanic, we did not have the best schools in the area. Right. Um, because the means, funding to the schools exactly. is paid by the taxes, right. which is proportional to the income of the people in that neighborhood. Right. Ipso facto, if you're in a poor neighborhood, your schools are poorer. Yes, exactly. So because the schools were poorer and we didn't have as much funding and we didn't have as many resources um, like coming our way, you didn't have the uh, – you didn't have students – qualifying for colleges and becoming like well-rounded candidates for colleges the same way you had down the street in the predominantly white neighborhood that had more funding people were naturally um better candidates for colleges because of the elementary system the middle school system and the high school system that was preparing them all along the way to be good candidates for like ivy league colleges right right so the problem isn't just within college like admitting and that's not where we need to start fixing things which i i know the sentiment of like no but it's somewhere to start right but the issue is greater than that it's like if i would have had a better quality education in elementary school and middle school and high school like i probably would have had the opportunity to go to one of these other schools not because of affirmative action, but because I was just a better candidate than somebody else. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Ivy League schools, too. Another thing with that is that when it comes to, you know, those those prestigious schools, which end up, you know, many times providing people with opportunities for careers with the highest earning potentials of anybody in the country, uh, a large portion of the admittance into those schools are uh, legacy admittance, meaning right. that like your dad went, mm-hmm. your grandfather mm-hmm. went. And so like a lot of their enrollment is, you know, contingent upon that. 
And those folks are overwhelmingly white. Right, because hundreds of years ago, if you were black, you weren't allowed in. Exactly. So there's no legacy to be had because at some point there, it very much was based on race of who can get in and who cannot get in. And now that it's no longer based on quote unquote race, um, there's another system that is still continuing to hold back the minority groups. And I think those are the types of systems that we need to begin to rectify and not just have a blanket affirmative action to like deal with what we perceive as the surface level problem of we just need more black people. We just need more Asian people. We just need more Hispanic people. Like that's kind of dealing with the surface issue of great. Our numbers are up. Fantastic. But why is it that so many people within the minority group have not been able to go to your school? Right. What, what has been stopping them from the beginning? And when it comes to Ivy league, like, yeah, if it's legacy admission, Like, well, that's probably your issue because at some point in the history of that school, it was a whites only school. So therefore, the legacy is going to be white people only. And you're going to continue to have that cycle. um, And that's why you're going to continue to have the numbers be what they are. So instead of just trying to meet quotas, I think we have to dig deeper into the issue and figure out why is it that the numbers are skewed to one side over the other. Like, why is it that that continues to be uh, the reality of whatever it is that you're looking at, whether it's the workplace, whether it's college education, like, why is it that we continue to see these things? So it just takes more work than one policy of, great, I'm going to hire one white person, I'm going to hire one non-white, I'm going to hire two non-white. Like, you know, you just can't. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not actually dealing with the root issue. Like, sure, I think it's arguable that it's making some kind of forward progress, but it doesn't require anyone to actually look at what is holding people back in the first place. Yeah, so in many ways, affirmative action was uh, too low a bar in terms of trying to create some kind of justice across uh, racial divides. But the caveat with that and wanting to hold intention with is that it was, it was the only thing that was in place up exactly. until the Supreme Court turned it over. So now we're left in a place of uncertainty with some schools uh, maybe needing to re- you know enact different policies. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's like, oh, something was better than nothing. But in order to get something better, you had to take away that something. Uh, in order to find something that's more actually equitable and just. Mm -hmm. Because people aren't going to think, well, we're meeting quotas, so then we're fine. Is there still an issue? Well, no, there's not an issue because the numbers, there's not an issue. It's like, no, look further into this. And the example of Texas is is such a good example. I I think it's crazy that it's like Texas. I know. We're We're always like, you know, criticizing on Texas when it comes to anything related to race, but they actually came came up with a pretty good system. Right. And so how do we, and that system, I mean, just from what's been shared so far, makes sense, right? Where it's the, it doesn't matter what school you came from, like you were in the top percent, which at that point, that is based on that student's hard work, like what they did. It didn't even uh, marginalize them because of which school district they were coming from. And that's even a thought that I'm already having, like with our boys and where we're moving um, community, we're going to plant ourselves in is what do these school districts look like? Now, my mom didn't have that option. Right. We went to the school district we went to because that's where she could afford to live. Like the, the privilege of even considering, well, I don't want to put my kid in this school district versus that one because this one's going to give them better opportunities. Like that in and of itself is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question. I don't even I remember never what know my question do, was. Yeah. That's what I, that's what, that's my answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, turning this conversation specifically to the context of the church. I know we've been speaking kind of broadly uh, and kind of just, you know, right. here's what we think and we are Christians. But we uh, are a Christian podcast, so we actually yeah, need exactly. to, like, talk about what are the theological ramifications for this. Right. So um, looking at American evangelicalism, uh, there is this large movement that has existed for a while. and It's kind of on the, the tail end of uh, a national movement uh, to create multi-ethnic churches. And there's like this big push in the racial reconciliation movement of like the 90s. 
uh, where everybody had a brochure and I had at least two black people on on the brochure. Um, a lot of that has kind of died down, but I would say that most churches, at least good ones, want to be diverse. Um, what do you think is a healthy vision of diversity and an unhealthy vision for diversity when it comes to our churches? So I think a healthy vision of diversity uh, is dependent upon the makeup of the community that you're in. And so if the community you're in has a majority race and it doesn't that that doesn't mean like it's the majority race for the nation, it's the majority race within that community. So, for example, where I grew up, the majority race was Hispanic. So it makes sense that the uh churches in that area would look very similar to the community that it was planted in, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you do have a community that is uh, a multi-ethnic community where you have, you know, percentages of a lot of varying races, then your church should look like the community it's planted in, in terms of its diversity. Um, I, I don't think we should try and force it to where if that community is predominantly white in terms of like 90% of that community is white, it would look rather odd for 50% to be black and 50% to be white because then where are those people coming from? Right. I mean, they might be from within the community. It's just a disproportionate number of them are coming to that church. Or on the other side, right? Like if you live in a predominant, um, if your church is in a predominantly a black community and it's 95% white like that is a problem because what is happening within your church that is not mirroring the diversity of the community that you live in and that's you know something that i've personally seen a many lot. many many times especially us being here in riverside county california where there's a there's a great amount of diversity here but then you go into a white evangelical church on any given corner and it's like white white like 95 percent white and you're like whoa you feel like you got teleported into a different place in space because you're you know this isn't you know boise idaho or bozeman montana this is riverside california and like why is everyone in here white like there's something amiss there right because if you're walking into church and it looks different than when you walk into the grocery store than when you walk into i mean do malls exist in some places yes but i'm just saying like the places that you frequent for business uh, does the church look different than that? Like when you look around, is there more diversity within the grocery store that's two blocks away from your church? Um, then I do think that's a problem. But trying to force diversity, uh, that's an issue too because diversity is not the end goal within the church, within the Christian community. It needs to be part of it, absolutely, because that's biblical of what we see. Um, but to try and... I, it's it's uncomfortable when you have um, churches then trying to go find uh, the the one black family that's going to be in their church or mm-hmm. the one. And they plaster them on everything. They yeah. plaster them on the website yeah. and on their brochures. And that doesn't give them dignity. Right. You know? they're, being, like, they're, they're being used. They're, be, they're being used for the sake of you saying you're a diverse church um, instead of actually creating a culture within that church that welcomes and makes uh, people of different backgrounds feel comfortable. And the unity that brings them together should be Christ and not anything else. Yeah. We recently had the privilege of uh, John Onwachegwa. He's a used to be a pastor. He's an author. He's a speaker, um, theologian. Uh, he came and spoke to our church plant launch team, and he was talking to us a little bit about this and just the idea of diversity and having a diverse church. And what he told us, it was like such great wisdom, is that uh, diversity is a byproduct of solidarity. And when you pursue diversity as um, the end goal, then um, you start to do weird things. But if you pursue solidarity uh, with your community, justice, um, 
be showing up for your community and the places where your community needs you to show up and to have solidarity with them, what will naturally begin to happen is that your church will begin to reflect the community. And if you're living in a diverse community, your church will become more diverse, both uh, racially, socioeconomically, you know, just all the ways it'll start to look diverse. And so you're not like on the hunt for what's the person of color right. that we can put on stage. Yeah. Um, because you're, you have solidarity with the community. Those are the people that you're naturally interacting with and attracting and uh, inviting in and so like when you look out um you're kind of looking at things based on people's spiritual maturity and the merit and putting them into places of leadership and naturally your leadership and your church generally will be more diverse but not because you were trying to be a multi-ethnic church but because you had solidarity with your community Mm -hmm. and you showed up where your community needed them and then because of that your community showed up to be part of your church Right. And if you're looking out at your church and realizing it doesn't mirror the community, then acknowledging that that's an issue, acknowledging that what are we doing that's hindering people within our community to walk through our doors, to feel comfortable walking through our doors. Those are the problems to solve. The problem to solve is not, well, I'm looking out and there's a lot of white people. So now we need to go find some black and brown people. Like that's not actually dealing with the issue because the issue is why is it that they have not already felt comfortable walking through your doors um, or, you know, the opposite, the opposite too. We just don't find the opposite as often as we find. And I think too, a lot of times I've been a part of white evangelical churches. They're like, wow, we're a diverse church. And it's because we had like three families of color. Uh, but it's like, whoa, if you actually look at the numbers of who's in the community and who's in our church, we have a long way to go in terms of diversity, which means we have a long way to go in showing up for our community in a way that they can appreciate. Right. And another like huge piece of that is your leadership team should also reflect that. So let's say, you know, you've done just like a really great job and you look out in your church and there's a lot of diversity, but then you look at those that are leading and they are only people um, from the majority group. Uh, that's also an issue because you want the leadership team to also reflect the body of Christ, which should also reflect the community. Right. Yeah. Here's one very kind of specific example that we can speak to because I wasn't sure how I felt about it at the time. And I'm still not quite sure how I feel about it. Uh, But I was part of a church that was in a community that used to be a majority white community. And so the church was majority white. And um, the community had begun to change to where it was now uh, minority majority. And so when the church was looking to bring a pastor on staff, uh, one of the kind of goals or requirements of the hiring committee in the church was that this person would come from that specific ethnic group that was now becoming a prominent feature of the community. Um, What are your thoughts on that specific kind of situation or – approach um it doesn't that's hard my first thought was like is that like legal i'm I'm not sure it doesn't feel entirely legal no i don't think maybe you get an exemption if you're a religious organization (laughs) i don't know like i honestly don't know if it's legal or not but i'm like they feel slightly illegal right yeah i mean it definitely is illegal at least within california because you cannot hire based on race or gender yeah, um, so if somebody you so, know dropped a dime on us, they there probably could have been some kind of issue. Yes, yeah, uh, I understand the thought behind it of how do we have the leadership team mirror the congregation? Well, easy, you just hire somebody that is from the ethnic group of the congregation. Um, There's probably a way you could have got around it, like, oh, we want someone who's bilingual and speaks one of these languages. That the person they hired ended up being bilingual and speaking one of those languages. Yeah. So maybe from a legal standpoint, you could create some kind of case around that. But you know, just that was just another thought. That well, and I think part of the conversation also needs to be how do you view leadership? Is leadership just the senior pastor of that church? Is that the only way that you can um, mirror the congregation? If you have a like a plurality of leaders and pastors, then I think that that makes it a little bit easier to uh, have the congregation represented within the leadership. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm going to have a very clear answer. 
I think from a legal standpoint, there's a lot of issues. Um, and yeah, I just don't think that you should be seeking the leader of the church based on their ethnicity. Either mm-hmm. way, I don't right, think that right. should be any Obviously, kind of, you shouldn't be looking for just a white person. Right. But we all have learned that lesson based on gesturing <laughs> broadly at American history. Yeah, but I think you might run into some issues in the future by just flipping the way that you um, limit who's an eligible candidate for a position. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe just too simple a solution for such a complex problem. Right. Again, I think that Like if that's your it, only thought, like, oh, we'll just hire so-and-so because they're this color. Exactly. Like you're thinking pretty small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if like gun to my head and I had to say, do you agree? Do you disagree? I think I'm going to have to say I disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's, I think the heart to solve the dilemma is there, but it's not as easy as um, let's just change who we allow to enter into this position. Mm-hmm. Because like, does your elder board look like that too? Cause it, then it starts to feel like the token, like minority person. Mm. You know, because uh, if your elder board all looks like just one group of people, um, if the other pastors on staff. And so then you just have the quote unquote senior pastor now looks like the congregation. Um, then that feels a lot like tokenism to me. Yes. So I think it's it's broader than just one role. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot there. And in the end, diversity like we said, is not the goal unto itself. The goal is justice, right? If we are following Jesus, the goal is honoring the whole of human dignity and not just a certain segment of it. And that's something that should be really important to us as Christians because it's an extension of how we love one another and how we display the love of Christ to the world. Because like, since we live in a broken world, Uh, And this country is marked in a very specific way by past and present injustices. Um, Figuring out how to love the whole of humanity in our place and space, it's a little bit messy. And a lot of times it can feel probably like two steps forward, one step back. And that's kind of like probably what we've been discussing with a lot of this DEI, affirmative action, just hiring practices. What do you do? A lot of times it's like we really step in it by trying to create a solution. Um when we create a lot of problems as well along the way with those solutions. But uh, that doesn't mean that we should abandon the project entirely because that would be outright sinful to do. Like we, even though it's messy, we have to keep walking through the mud. And when we step on something, we got, you know, whoops, and then go a different direction um, because we can't give up on the idea of justice and solidarity uh, in our churches and in our, our community um, because to do that would be to give up something essential of who God has called us to be. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Hello, my name is Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we're the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, check us out, Life After Addiction Podcast, and you can subscribe at lifeaudio.com.